I'm Shannon. And I'm Lisa. And you're listening to Black Tivities. A celebration of all things Black. Black culture, Black history, Black perspectives, and Black panache. Celebrating our Blackness doesn't mean exclusion. Everybody's invited, but you gotta come in and have a seat. So let, let the Black Tivities begin. Hello again. It's your girl, Shannon, here with my co-host, Mona Lisa, the poet. And welcome to Black Activities Pod. We got some good news and we got some bad news. So let's start with the bad news first. The bad news is that this is the last episode of season one. So you won't be hearing our voices every two weeks for a while. But the good news is we will be back in February. And we're going to be taking this thing weekly. Woo! Yes. Let the parties begin. Uh, Three things you can do in the meantime. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Share Black Activities with a friend. And sign up for our brand new newsletter to stay up to date with what we got going on. And it will be somewhat of an extension of the content that we share with you on the show. That being said... Let's talk about education today. Today, we're talking about the state of education in our black community. Some of you may not know this, but I got about 15 years as an educator under my belt. I feel really old saying that. No, I don't do that. This is good. (laughs) But I digress. Um, When I started teaching, I was teaching in the hood. I mean, our neighborhood. And I got to say, it was rough. Like, if you know my heart, you know that I want to help and I want to make a difference in our community schools. So my heart was in the right place, but I really don't feel like I did much but stress myself out in that situation. And I say that because, one, I was an inexperienced teacher and... I don't care if you graduated at the top of your class or memorized all the textbooks, like everything you learn goes out the window when you get into the classroom as a teacher. Two, my background was completely different from the kids that I was teaching, and I really couldn't relate to them. And three, I felt like they were dealing with so much stuff outside of school that I really couldn't even blame them for not caring about school like that. Because they had difficult home lives. I actually used to go home crying a lot because I cared so much and the kids didn't. So eventually, like for my mental health, I ended up going to another school. But I did feel guilty about that because I did want to help our people. How did we as a community get to that point? Because it wasn't always that way. I think it's time for sex facts. I mentioned in a previous episode that after slavery ended, black schools started popping up everywhere because prior to that, it was illegal for black people to be educated. They knew that knowledge and literacy was powerful, and they tried to keep it from us to continue to oppress and enslave our ancestors. With the help of the Freedmen's Bureau, more schools were opened, but they were underfunded and understaffed, 
So they started bringing in teachers from the North to help the schools in the South because they couldn't find enough literate Black people in the South to teach at first. Of course, this progress was met with much resistance. White building owners did not want to sell or rent their buildings to Black people for their schools. So they began having schools in Black churches. The teachers from the North were subject to intimidation and Black schools were burned. They made laws to withhold public school funds for white students and tax the black schools. All the help from the Freedmen's Bureau stopped in 1870. But in the next few years, black folks started voting and getting some representation in legislation, which is all the more reason why it's important to vote. They started passing laws that created public school systems and advocating for the right to be educated during Reconstruction. Then came old Jim Crow, making segregated schools legal in 1896 with the Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court decision. This meant that the lack of funds and resources continued, which affected the student-teacher ratio, and oftentimes there was one teacher for all subjects in all grades. Black families paid what some call a black tax, which was a double tax because they had to pay the local taxes, but they also needed to support their black schools. But still, there was pride in being able to get an education. There was a sense of working together as a community for the greater good and an advancement of a community that I question exists today. In the 1930s, folks like Charles Hamilton Houston and his former student Thurgood Marshall worked with the NAACP to begin suing universities for equity among students and teachers. They used the psychological studies from the famous Dahl test to show that segregated schools led to low self-esteem in black children. It wasn't until 1954 that the Brown versus Board of Education reversed the Plessy versus Ferguson decision and said that these schools were separate, but they definitely weren't equal. We started seeing folks like the Little Rock Nine and the Little Ruby Bridges integrating white schools. And white folks, it's big mad. They took a white flight to the suburbs, which of course affected our pockets because that took away some of the tax money that the schools needed. Busing black kids to white schools outside our neighborhood was part of a tactic to obtain better education for our kids, but we kind of took an L on that one. By the late 70s, we started to see our neighborhood schools decline and close. Black parents whose kids were bused couldn't really be as involved because the schools were not close and the black kids were oftentimes being treated more harshly than their white schoolmates. This led black folks to say, abort mission with the bus and stuff. Some people argue that our schools are just as segregated now as in the past because of class and wealth. Most black people can't afford to live in areas with better schools and resources. So we still have to attend our neighborhood underfunded and understaffed schools. So did we really make any progress? And that's Saks Facts.
have to admit with my oldest daughter who is now in college, um, I experienced issues when she was in high school to where I wanted to be that parent that was very involved in her education and very involved in her future. So we was try we tried, you know, three or four occasions to set up appointments with her counselor. And I felt like every time that we went there, it was like I had to remind her who my child was and she would type her name on the computer and she'll get it pulled up and she like, Oh yeah. Okay. Well, let's see what she got going on here. And I was like, it felt as if there was no personal relationship whatsoever. And we did run into issues to where my daughter got accepted into all of these colleges and the one that she chose to go to, they reached out to her and said, well, we don't have your final transcript from the high school you went to. Mm. And we're like, wait, what? So keep in mind, it was on us to reach out to the high school to make sure they submit her final transcript, you know, and this is during COVID when the schools were closed. So we ran into so many issues to where I, I personally feel like she missed out on a lot of, especially scholarship opportunities. You know, like we're not talking about a kid who was barely working by. She had all A's her whole high school year. She never failed a class 4.0, like great. But when it came to her other counterparts, they received help and scholarships and most of them didn't even need the money to go. But again, I, I just see that where there is an issue where, you know, they're, they're, you know, African-Americans aren't treated the same. I also want to say, y'all, please excuse me if you hear any background noise. Um, the lawn people did decide that they want to come and cut, you know, everyone's grass today and uh, blow all of the leaves um, everywhere, which is um, crazy, you know, considering that <laughs> there's still leaves falling. But hey, neither here nor there, you know, going to let them do their work. <laughs> I guess that'd be kind of crazy. I went out there with no bra on, screaming at them to get their ass <laughs> on somewhere. Uh, but uh, yeah, so excuse the noise if you hear some extra noise in the background. Well, Lisa, you're talking about like the unfair treatment with education and universities. So that's a good way to transition into a discussion about um, affirmative action. Because it's looking like right now the Supreme Court might get rid of affirmative action, which is something that became a thing in 1961 when JFK issued an executive order. And under that order, it said that any organizations who work with or receive funds from the government, including educational institutions, have to document that they're not engaging in discriminatory practices. Um, with that possibly being overturned, do you think we've made enough progress that it doesn't really matter anymore if we have affirmative action or do you think if they take it away, we effed? I think if they take it away, we're effed. Well, you know what, regardless of that, I mean, we're still experiencing issues with it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like it's policed enough, um, to where, it, 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 it is supposed to be where it is. So if anything, I wouldn't take it away. I would just be a little bit more stricter and just policing and making sure that it is fair. 
Um, you remember that scandal not too long ago with the a whole bunch of actors who did some shady stuff to get their kids in college? Yes, ma'am. Now, did they get real, real serious jail time? Mm-mm. Right. So imagine if we, you know, were in a situation where we was doing some shady practices like that. I mean, they were able to do this, these little shady things while we had all of these little, you know, laws in place, you know. So just imagine if we didn't have anything in place, what exactly would happen um, when it comes to fairness, when it comes to making sure that enough people are selected, when it comes to us actually having the opportunities as, you know, our other counterparts. So I think they should leave it as is. I don't think you should go back and try to, you know, because I mean, that that was placed for a reason, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So in your opinion, what do you think would happen if they totally abolished and got rid of it? Well, first of all, the conservative justices in the Supreme Court, they think they slick because the language of that executive order says that government contractors must take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. So they are trying to be slick about it and say, well, you know, if you put race in the admissions process for school, right? Mm-hmm. That is regarding race, and that's how they're trying to overturn that. Well, see, I don't. I, and again, I was like, I see what they're trying to do. Yeah, but it's like they take little small things, and they're like, "Hey, look at this. Let's let's draw attention to this. We need to fix this rather than fixing the actual issues that are happening." Facts. Yeah. So it's like they little like we are like here. Hey, look at this. Come here, boy. Look at this little string I have. <laughs> oh my god. Let's let's look at the string. Let's focus on it. Where this freaking chaos going? You know, in the other direction. Right. Like, it's a distraction. Let's fix actual problems. Let's go in and let's look at all of these schools and these major corporations that. To this day, they vow that, hey, we're going to have diversity and inclusion um, orders and policies in place, but there is still things that are occurring. Let's crack down on the people that are actually doing things to where, you know, people are being left out. I don't really trust white folks with equality yet. I really don't trust that they're going to do what's right without there being some kind of law in place to make them do so. And so there's a possibility that if this is overturned, that it might lead to less access to like the prestigious colleges. Yes. Which Mm -hmm. in turn would lead to less access to like C-suite jobs, like CEO, COO, all those jobs. And it's already looking slim. So like as much, I don't know. Like, I'd like to say, well, we got our HBCUs that will accept our kids, but they still don't have like the clout that Harvard has or some universities like that. So like if you put a white person or an Asian person from Harvard 
up against, say, a black guy who graduated from Jackson State or FAMU, like, who are they going to give the job to? And, and that's a very valid point. Very, very valid point. I like to think that when it comes to the HBCUs, like we put more on it than anything. Like we're hyping it up and they don't get the same respect like you just stated when it comes to the Harvards and the Yales. So it's just it's a, it's a sticky situation. It's just so weird. But no matter what's going on, guys, get that education. Yes. Get it. I mean, it, it's a proven point that we do have to fight harder when it comes to certain things like this. Do not let this deter you. Even if they do get rid of the affirmative action, uh, do not let this deter you for getting what's, what's, what you deserve. Okay? Because we need more African-American, not only African-Americans, but we do need more ethnicities out there for the cause. So, what about our K through 12 schools, like in our black communities? I was talking about my experience with working in in those types of schools. What do you feel like is going on in our K through 12 schools in our black communities? You touched on something and that's the teacher's abil- inability to relate to um, her students and then also to. I'm not exactly sure because I'm not a teacher, but when it comes to certain children um, that may have personal problems at home, sometimes even though teachers are mandated reporters, right? Not all instances where, I mean, certain things are reported. And if they're due, it's it's like some children fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think more than less is that connection between the teacher and the student. Again, I feel like, yes, it is. It is very important for there to be that parent involvement, meaning we got to get our butts up and we have to be at those schools. They have apps available here. We have one where we can communicate with the teacher. And that's something that I do, especially if it's simple as if, you know, your child didn't sleep too well last night. That way that teacher is uh, aware of that. Um, if mentally you have noticed something off with your child, make the teacher aware of that. That way the teacher can see that and that possibly get that child the assistance, you know, the help that they would need. Um, I think more or less too, you know, that will contribute to if there's any behavioral issues, because if that teacher know that you and the parent is on the same page, then, Hey, that, that would kind of do something. And in, in my opinion, it does. So, yeah, I, I think that would. So that's something that I have tried to, you know, do, especially now with my younger daughter is make sure I have an open line of communication with her teacher. It even went as far as when we went on vacation, our last vacation to the beach. My youngest was like, please send some pictures to my teacher. And just by me sending pictures to her teacher, that created some type of bond to where, when that teacher was on vacation, she would send Avery pictures and it was just like, it, it, I don't know, it, it did something and it made Avery feel special that way when she's in that teacher's presence, even though she's not family, she's an older Caucasian woman, it still gave Avery, it made Avery feel special. Yeah. So she knows that, you know what, this teacher cares about me and she does her best when she's in that class. 
So I think, again, that bond more than anything. Yes, we need resources. Yes, there's a lot of things that can contribute. But that bond between that child and that teacher, it says a lot. It speaks volumes in my book. You know, I grew up in a middle class family and I went to a white school. (laughs) So my home was stable. I never experienced some of the things that those kids in that school were going through. And so it was a little bit difficult for me to bond with them on a certain level, but I was a younger teacher. So I did kind of bond with them because, you know, some of the music they listened to, I listened to some of the um, pop culture things or whatever I could connect with them on. But there was definitely behavior issues and little parental involvement. Um, I had one time where we had scheduled a conference with this person's mom. We called her because it was a phone conference and she picked up and we said, this is so-and-so from such and such school. And she was like, hold on one second. Um, Can you guys call me back because the connection's bad or something like that? And so we hung up, called her right back, and she never answered again. And see, that's unacceptable. Me, my anxiety wouldn't let me get that far because I'm like, who the hell? What you done did now? (laughs) Uh, I'm up there. You know what? Since the connection bad, I'm on my way to the school. You know, so, yeah, that's unacceptable. We had those parents that would come up to the school, but it was only a couple. And then, you know, all the little special days that they invite teachers to come to the school, it would barely be anybody, which is like completely different from the school that I work in now. Like it'll be maybe two parents that don't show up. There was also lack of resources. There's a lot of teacher turnover there, of course, because it's stressful. At one school that I was at, we actually had like a paper count for making copies. So the school that I'm at now, they just like throw money and resources at us. And it's so backward because I'm like, I mean, I would figure that's a good thing, right? I mean, it is for me as a teacher, but I don't teach in our community. I teach in a ritzy community right now. It's like I've, I've only taught at Title I schools, which is low income schools until this school that I'm currently in. And this is the only school where I've had more than enough resources to do what I need to do. I was even at a um, training not too long ago with different teachers from my district. And one of the teachers in a predominantly black school in our district, she was like, because we have one-to-one devices, meaning all the students get a device. Mm -hmm. And, um, She was like, yeah, they don't give out devices in our school anymore because the one year that they did it, they never got half of them back. What? And who who fault was that, though? The kids took them home and they didn't give them back. Mm. So I don't know. A lot of low performance academically. A lot of the kids, they they complained about school every day, but then they kind of didn't want to leave because it was like it had so many issues that they had to deal with at home, it was better to be at school. 
You know what I'm saying? Some, some things were things that I couldn't handle as an adult. So it's a lot going on. Do you feel guilty about living outside of like the black community and your kids going to a predominantly white school? Cause my kids, I live in the suburbs. My kids go to predominantly white school. I'm glad you asked me this. If you know me, you know that my children, they grew up in the military, like they were military kids. So we traveled a lot. They were sheltered from a lot of things because they were military children. So a lot of places we went, obviously it was diverse because this was different people, you know, moving to a new place. So when it came to bullying, my children wasn't bullied as, you know, I wouldn't say as much. There was, there was a lot of things they didn't have to worry about. Um, when we exited the military life and we decided to move back home, I had that option of moving them back to my hometown or coming to where um, we currently live now, um, which is out in Georgia. And my hometown is Chattanooga, Tennessee. Big up, chat town. Boom, boom, represent. <laughs> AA. Um, but me growing up, I knew that where I live, it was a lot of black children. It was a lot of, and I was just like, whoa, I feel like I'd be throwing them to the wolves because that'd be terrifying to just throw them, you know what I'm saying? Because they wasn't used to that. So I said, well, let me go back to where I went to school in Georgia and I regret that decision. You do. Of bringing them back. Yes. Because I felt like that was a situation to where I was trying to shield them. But in reality, I should have put them in a place where they were among children, their same skin color. Um, I have to say, um, I had a cousin that graduated from Tyner Academy in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and their counselor there that he had, I mean, amazing, amazing. Like he would tell me how their counselors would meet with them on a regular basis. They always they had like a little newsletter where they always gave them information about scholarships, was on them to make sure they applied. Um, my cousin did very well for us, you know, getting enough money up and going to school. Um, I want to shout him out. Um, he is amazing. He graduated from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um I have to say, like, I, I, there are so many, so many, like, family members and so many people that I do know where they were in school in Chattanooga, even though as rough as they say it might be, they were able to get those resources. And we're talking about African American, like, black schools, you know what I mean? Predominantly black schools. And then here it is, I moved my children to this area to where, <laughs> My daughter, I had to go up to the school, my oldest, to the school so many times because she was getting into it where she was being called a nigga by white children. And it was so frustrating because nowadays you can't go up to the school and act a fool. You're going straight to jail. I can't get my nails and hair done in jail like I want to. So (laughs) I'm very limited on how I can respond to it. But I had to go and sit down with these principals and counselors and the teachers. And I'm like, Hey, like my daughter was disrespected today. She's being picked on. 
She had, you know, people on the cheerleading team calling her the N-word. She had, you know, she's being mistreated. She's being bullied. And it was just, oh, we'll look into it. Don't worry. But I'm like, how can you tell me this each and every time? Whereas if she was at a regular school, I don't think it would have been that way. Yeah, I'm not saying that she wouldn't have had any issues or anything, but I don't think it would have been the same way. So sometimes we think that we're shielding our children, but in reality, we maybe that's just what they need. Mm. And she's doing very well now, but I do regret moving back down south to predominantly white schools and having my children go through this, what they're going through. And it's not just the other children. It is actual staff and adults who see them and think, you know, a certain way about them. And again, they miss out on certain resources because I'm not at the school being bubbly, bubbly, you know, too bubbly. And I'm not on the whole, what's the, what's the whole, the, the teacher, PTA, PTA. <laughs> Bro, I got to go to work. I can't be up there at the school volunteering every, every day. But again, I've tried to find other ways. And this is something that I'm doing differently. I'm trying to find other ways to be involved. Like, I'm, I'm going to tell y'all, I signed up for career day. And yes, I had my little, uh, I call it my Cruella DeVille, little polka dot blazer. You know, <laughs> I had my new wig on, baby. I was cute. And I set up, they gave me a room and I set it up to represent um, the financial institution that I do work for. I talked about my career and what schooling and background and I have. I talked about bookkeeping and accounting that, you know, from the past that I got a little education on. And it felt so good to have um, all of these children just looking at me, a black face representing this company. And was like, wow, I didn't know I can get a job there or I didn't know I can do this or, you know, and some of the questions they was asking was like next level questions like, oh, my God, like who kid is this? Y'all need to pay attention to this kid. because <laughs> He is very special. So I try to find other ways to be involved. And I think that's what's important is you guys need to be involved in your kids schooling. And. I'm not going to say that the schools don't pay attention 100%. They do pay attention. <laughs> it may be to the wrong things. <laughs> I don't know if y'all know this. Y'all go drop your kids off now, how they have like the little, what they call the little police officer that stay at the school now? Mm-hmm, the SRO. Yeah, SRO. The SRO out there pulling the kid, helping kids get out the car in the morning. So please stop lighting up blunts, dropping your children off. <laughs> what? Oh, yes, ma'am. We need to spread awareness to this. Y'all need to stop smoking around y'all children like that. I don't care what you say. Y'all need to stop doing that. Because there has been many calls and many situations to where the people be dropping their kids off at school and the kids be smelling like weed or the car be smelling like weed. Well, the school that I teach in now, as I mentioned before, is diverse, but not diverse in that there's a lot of black kids. There's a lot of Asian kids. There's some black kids. It's like a sprinkle of everything. So I definitely like have a special heart for the minority children because it's not a black school that they're going to. So 
you know, when I had my fro, I would try to poof it up. You know, I feel like I'm representing for them so they can see me in this different environment and be like, oh, yeah, I can wear my fro. Like, I don't have to have a weave or whatever. Like, I can wear my natural hair and be proud or whatever. So real quick, because we're running out of time. Mm -hmm. um, How do you think we can overcome, like, the gap between our kids and how they perform academically and other cultures? Um, With us, we need to be more involved in our education, our children's education, meaning all of them papers that they bring home, even though, Lord Jesus, we got to come up with a way that y'all stop bringing all them papers home. <laughs> maybe y'all can scan. Maybe the teachers, I was going to present this idea, but maybe y'all can just scan them in and use that same, you know, resource that we had to communicate the way we can view the papers. But anyway, that's neither here. That. That's a different, different subject. Uh, but we have to look at these papers that they're bringing home. We have to look at the assignments, the tests, you know, help them prepare um, for, you know, know what they're covering that week in school. Ask them open ended questions to make them think. Um, and again, this is something that I've been trying to master with my children. Um, and I do see a difference. But we I think the first step is us as parents. We have to become more involved into the schools. And that's my opinion. Uh, my thoughts are just better and more education to me can be the key to a lot of things. Better education leads to better jobs, which leads to more income and less poverty. Less poverty means that we no longer have to live in survival mode, which I think a lot of black people are living in on a daily basis, especially in our neighborhoods. Um, not living in survival mode means that there's more time and attention for our kids and what they're doing in, in school, which means that the kids can focus more on education and break those generational curses and trauma. Oh, yes, ma'am. Say that again. That's a win for the community as a whole, because we can really do some things for ourselves and not have to even factor in what other communities are doing for us. If we can get to that point um, and we can break those barriers that currently exist, like there's certain communities like Asian communities, they go hard for their kids in education like they are not playing with their kids. Um, but I mean, I've realized that there's a history with us and oppression in this country, but we can't continue to use that as an excuse. We got to go hard and we got to bring our A game. I totally agree. Well, as rough as this conversation has been, um, when it comes to us and education, uh, let's turn it up a bit. Let's, uh, let's have a little fun. And I think this is going to push us into our next segment, which is the Blacktivity. Hey, 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 hey. Yes, growing up in our schools, you know, we experience certain type of things. But um, I don't know if this this may be kind of hard for you, Shannon. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm gonna ask though, because this is some of the black, this is some of like the things that we look forward to in school when we were younger. So I'm gonna ask you these questions, right? 
And we're going to see, you know, if you can get how many you can get right. OK, if my ready? white education served me. OK. All right. So we're going <laughs> to see. All right. OK. All right. So for my people. OK, let's go back to when you were young. OK, and we talking about like the 80s baby. So this means like in the 90s, you went elementary school. OK, and it could be earlier on. But listen, so before technology took over. And we basically had to work a little harder to show off our first day of school drip, okay? Our outfits, our new shoes. What would you do to show the whole class your outfit? What is something you had to do? You had to get up and go sharpen your pencil. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yes. That way they could see. And yes, that thing you had right. to turn yes. a little crank. Uh-huh. Yes. So, yes, ma'am, you got it right. Look at you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, let's move along. What food was most popular served during lunch and was mostly served on Fridays? Was it A, Salisbury Steak, B, Hamburgers, C, Applesauce, D, Pizza? I didn't need a multiple choice for that one. It was that that rectangular little pizza. Yes, Matt. Let me tell you something. Yes. I don't know what it was. Them things was good, though. Yes. Yes. So, yes, you got it right. Okay. Look at you. All right. I'm plugged in. Okay. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, let's move along. The sweet sound of Velcro made us feel like royalty. This was not listed on the school supply list, but it was a necessity. The bold, vibrant colors that they came in offered different compartments with three ring binders. This tool was probably the first introduction to our organization skills. What is this called? A trapper keeper. Yes. Oh, yes. Let me tell you something. The trapper keepers, baby. You ain't have no trapper keeper. You, you was not a part of that 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 life. Right. I had several of those with my pump up tennis shoes. Yes. Yes. And my starter jacket. What's? Do you remember what's the what starter jacket you had? I had a Tennessee one. Did you what? I had. I don't understand why my dad got me the University of Michigan. But when Netflix had the 30 for 30 and I went and I watched the football team 30, 30 for 30, there was some like thugs. Like they were selling <laughs> drugs in between games and hotel parties and getting arrested and getting bailed out right before they got like that was some thugs. And I was like, I can't believe my daddy bought me the University of Michigan starter jacket. And, but I understood, though, they went hard. But and, and they were winning. So, boom. Thank you, Daddy. Shout out for that one. I'm going to go give me another one. All right. So, this next one. <laughs> this game was something we look forward to on those old Apple box Apple computers. Okay. I don't know if you remember the old school computers that we had. Okay. With the real floppy disk. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oregon it, Trail. See, look at you. I need to get the finish. <laughs> But yes, so yes, they created the Oregon Trail in the On 70s that green to screen. teach us, yes, to teach us about the pioneer life. But no matter what decision you made on there, you and your crew 
always died a horrible death. <laughs> like dysentery like or something dysentery. like Dysentery. <laughs> and I'm like, bruh, or you, you died of starvation. And you're like, wait a minute. Like, you didn't give me, I didn't have any resources. There was no raccoons to kill to eat. Like, come on, <laughs> B. I have not met a successful person that was able to, you know what I thought about? When I was reading up on this, I said that I was going to go get this game and try it again to see if I can beat it. They got a modern day um, version. Yeah, I'm going to get it because, honey, I always die and it used to piss me off. All right. Last question. We look forward to any opportunity to be out of the classroom. So when the teachers notified us about an assembly or these visitors, we were so stoked. This traveling organization went from school to school to bring awareness to life situations and emotions. Okay. What tools did they use to assist them with their message? Was it A? You ready for this? Y'all should see the look on her face right now. (laughs) (laughs) Was it A? Flyers. B? Bulletin boards. C, animals, or D, puppets? Think about it. It was an organization that came to the school? Yeah, they went from school to school. And they would talk to us about life lessons and emotions and situation things that we might go through. They would, they would even talk to us about good touches and bad touches and all of that. So... Come I would on, say puppets, but I don't. I don't remember that. Yes, the puppets. You remember um the new kid, the, the kids on the block, oh. and they had the little puppets that came through. And my favorite one was the was the puppet in the wheelchair, and she okay. was talking about getting bullied all the time. I do yeah. remember that. See, that's I thought that you memories. were going down like the dare tip. Uh-uh, you got first. it, you got it. Yeah, so the puppets, the new kids on the block, so. <laughs> Those were the simpler <laughs> days. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's neither here nor there, but anyway. But you got them all right. All, all right. right. Look at you. See, I'm, right. I am black. <laughs> yes, you is. Yes, you <laughs> is. And don't let nobody else tell you different, baby. <laughs> all right, so what we're going to do is we're going to move along to Lisa's Pieces. I want to share a poem that um, has been my favorite for quite some time there, years, years. I have to say I was scrolling on Facebook when I was living in New York, and this had to have been like many years ago. I want to say almost 10 years ago. Um, And I came across this poem and it was so touching because it was so relatable. Um, It was very relatable. Without knowing, um, when I moved back down south, my best friend had graduated from college and she had a graduation party and she was introducing me to some of her co-workers and I had the pleasure of meeting a lot of her co-workers. Um, very talented people, very educated, smart, and on top of that, very fun and they were very welcoming. 
So uh, move along, I decided to tap into the poetic world. And I shared this poem with her. And she said, um, do you know you met the person that wrote that poem? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, they said some sixth grader wanted in a contest. And I was like, no, this poem um, was written by Joshua. He was at my graduation party. And I was like, excuse me? And she was like, yeah, you talked to him. And I was like, this is one of my favorite poems. Like, what do you mean? And she gave me a little history behind it. And come to find out, like, I had met the person and didn't even realize it. Wow. So I want to share this with you guys today. Um, again, this is so touching and so fitting with, you know, today's topic. And then um, you let it, let me know what you think about it. I'm pretty sure you had heard it before. This poem is called Cause I Ain't Got a Pencil by Joshua T. Dickerson. I woke myself up because we ain't got an alarm clock. Dug in the dirty clothes basket because ain't nobody washed my uniform. Brushed my hair and teeth in the dark because the lights ain't on. Even got my baby sister ready because mama wasn't home. Got us both to school on time to eat us a good breakfast. Then I got to class. The teacher fussed at me because I ain't got a pencil. Oh, that right there. Sheesh. So, hope you enjoyed this this uh, poem because, again, it's very special to me. I've definitely heard that poem before. And I think it, um, it puts things into perspective for teachers mm-hmm. especially. Because mm-hmm. there are kids going through things that we have no idea that they're right. suffering with every day. Right. Well, season one is a wrap. Now I said a little bit more excited than that. Season one is a wrap. Hey. <laughs> it's been fun and it's been real too. Um, during our little hiatus, you're going to want to join us on IG. We are still going to be working because we got to do season two. So we're going to be asking for your perspective on upcoming topics to feature on future episodes. If you want to get at us on IG, we are at Blacktivities Pod. We welcome your DMs and we do respond, but we ain't about that troll life. So you can get blocked, boo. Totally. <laughs> Block hand strong. Uh, look for new episodes in February. If you subscribe or follow us in your podcast platform, the new episodes will come right to you when they drop. But until then, King and Queens, keep doing big things. Yes, Let ma'am. Up.